Hello and welcome to the IOTA Unum podcasts from the Latin Mass Society. In the company of some great friends of tradition from around the world, we will be drilling into some of the fundamental issues affecting us today in the church and the world. So trying to summarise the contents of my book presents a challenge because it is a because of its apparently eclectic nature. It contains discussions of liturgical participation, the failure of the campaign against betting shops in the 1930s, Theodore Adorno's psychology of fascism, and the attitude of social workers and the police towards the victims of the UK's rape gangs. The underlying theme of the book became more apparent to me Um, and perhaps it will to you, um, as I was putting it together and writing new material for inclusion in it. uh, There is, in fact, a unifying purpose to the book and a unifying argument with which I attempt to achieve this purpose. The purpose is to defend the traditional mass and the movement that supports it from the most serious arguments commonly made against it. These are, in broad terms that this liturgy is not spiritually fruitful because it is incomprehensible, that it is Eurocentric in some bad sense, Um, that it historically hindered the church's apostolic work, that it or the movement in favour of it is associated with a kind of clericalism implicated in the clerical abuse crisis, and that it is associated with a patriarchal conception of the family, um, which is also regarded as very, very bad. Any defence of the traditional mass that omitted any of these themes would be seriously incomplete. However ridiculous we find these complaints, or contrastingly, however embarrassing we might find them, sweeping them under the carpet is not a sufficient response. They are all very long-standing arguments, and any one of them has the power to render the traditional mass unacceptable not only to our entrenched opponents, but to a lot of Catholics and people outside the church who up to now haven't given this issue very much thought, if, that is, the argument is accepted. So how do I respond to them? I've tried to get to the root of the argument in each case, because however disingenuous our opponents might be in making them, they they only have force with the wider public in as much as they have some purchase, some plausibility. And I want to get that into the light and examine it. Although I appeal to work of psychologists, sociologists, historians and others, I am, in the end, a philosopher. So the way I see the root of these objections to the traditional mass is in terms of a philosophical idea, and that is the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment is a vast and complex phenomenon, but its impact on the church and society Um, insofar as it has its impact in in church society, we can think of it in terms of two ideas, rationalism and romanticism. By rationalism, I have in mind the tendency to want to reduce everything to propositions. Claims, preferably verifiable ones, set out in words. It, it, It has even been claimed that other kinds of claims are not so much mistaken as meaningless. Romanticism is the contrasting idea that important things are more to do with feelings than with reason. It is feelings that are the ultimate arbiter of morality and perhaps even of reality. I need hardly draw, I need hardly draw out the contemporary ideas that descend from this one. 
Romanticism might seem completely incompatible with rationalism, and historically one can indeed see them reacting against each other. But surprisingly enough, a number of thinkers and movements combine them. Jean-Jacques Rousseau is a prime example. But other very rationalistic thinkers can come over all emotional and mystical when, um, when they talk about reason itself at a certain point in their argument, perhaps because they realise that their most fundamental principles aren't, in fact, rationally justifiable. In any case, we can think of rationalism and romanticism as the two horns of the Enlightenment bull. The Enlightenment was a break with philosophical tradition and made a great virtue of it. In this, it imitated the Protestant Reformation, and as with the Reformation, there is a lot of talk <clears throat> in the Enlightenment of doing away with what it regarded as nonsense associated with the Catholic tradition. A third wave of this kind of thing could be identified in the form of the French Revolution. It's no surprise that most of the great Enlightenment thinkers were Protestant. For the Enlightenment, like the Reformation before it and the Revolution after it, the Catholic Church was an enemy, perhaps the enemy, and her liturgy represented all that was bad about her. Rationalists objected that there is very little in the Catholic theology liturgy that can be reduced to clear statements of verifiable fact. Surprise, surprise. Romantics complained that liturgy did not spontaneously arise from participants' impulses, as of course it does in some Protestant liturgies, but focused on objective supernatural realities. <clears throat> I would say that the root of the problem in both cases is that the liturgy, like the scriptures, is rational, but rational on the basis of a different conception of rationality from that proposed by the Enlightenment. Contrary to what one might assume, rationality itself is a highly contested concept and rationalism has no monopoly on it. Reason is not a dirty word in Catholic theology, or indeed in the liturgy. The introit of Quasimodo's Sunday quotes 1 Peter 2.2, likening the word of God to milk for newborn babies, but it is rational milk, rationabile lack. But you haven't heard of rational milk before. <laughs> Romantics didn't like the traditional liturgy because it is rational, rationalists because it is the wrong kind of rationality. In the 19th century, something interesting happened, which is that the Romanticism reacted very strongly against the destruction of art and architecture wrought by the French Revolution, and also against the destruction of nature and of human nature by industrialization. One result of this was Romantic thinkers rediscovering the Middle Ages and getting very excited about Gothic architecture. For, for an important period of time, Romanticism became an ally of the Catholic Church and especially of the traditional Catholic liturgy, because even if it wasn't focused on worshippers' feelings, people found it very moving, and it represented the rich and varied traditions that were in danger of being swept away. Unbelievers like Marcel Proust and Oscar Wilde wrote some quite amazing things in praise of it, Wilde, of course, experienced it here in the oratory. The Catholic revival of that era owes a lot of its spring to this movement. However, by the middle of the 20th century, this kind of romanticism had gone out of fashion. The church isn't immune to intellectual fashions, and this was the backdrop to the liturgical reform. The growing cult of ugliness in art and architecture, the rejection of family and hierarchy, the cult of efficiency, speed and technology. Curiously, it, al it almost seems that in some ways that fascism, perhaps of the Italian variety, had triumphed after the Second World War. 
What people tended to say, however, was that Vatican II was an attempt by the Church to make her peace with the Enlightenment, or even with the French Revolution. In this book, I spend quite a lot of time explaining how, contrary to rationalist or functionist assumptions, it is possible for people to get something out of attending a liturgy which is apparently so difficult to understand. In a nutshell, the answer is that even people without much liturgical formation, even, in fact, random people off the street like Oscar Wilde, found it engaging at a level the Enlightenment does not prepare us to expect. This is not about engaging intellectually with a rationalist-style proposition, nor is it a romantic opportunity to express oneself. Speaking for myself, I'm not sure I have very much to say to God purely out of my own creativity. Instead, the worshipper experiences something objective, something coming from outside of himself, that expresses in a deep, non-propositional way the beauty of the Catholic religion and, above all, of the reverence due to the God who was evoked in it. The fact is, something like this must be true since the Catholic liturgy fed people's spiritual lives and brought in converts for so many centuries. There are those who argued in the 1960s that the old liturgy was holding the church back from converting the world, but given the collapse of the church since then, this is a pretty difficult argument to make today. <coughs> the relevance of arguments about Enlightenment rationalism might seem clear enough to the question of comprehensibility of the liturgy, but what, you may ask, has this got to do with the other themes of the book? Well, for one thing, the whole back and forth between tradition, rationalism and romanticism is a phenomenon of elite European culture. The Enlightenment did not happen in China or Zimbabwe, though they eventually felt its effects. There is a danger in the Church making her peace with the Enlightenment, even supposing that is in fact possible, that we ignore the bigger picture. That is, outside Europe and what were once called the white colonies, people engage their religious instincts most readily through ritual and are quite comfortable with what Enlightenment thinkers would dismiss as magical thinking. The same, in fact, is true of those parts of Europe and North America where rationalist education has not overcome all pre-existing instincts and ways of thinking. Um, and in those places where it has been self-consciously rejected, as by the New Age, and also of those parts of the elite, particularly the artistic elite, who, like the romantics mentioned above, are concerned that rationalism is making their culture into a spiritual wasteland. It follows from this slightly wider historical perspective that the claim that the traditional mass is Eurocentric in some problematic way is the reverse of the truth. The Enlightenment is the touchstone of modern European culture, and it was the father, among other things, of scientific racism and colonialism. The traditional mass brings to European culture and to the Catholic culture of other continents the wisdom and aesthetics of the Mediterranean world of late antiquity, from a time when Europe, as conceived by critical race theory, can hardly be said to have existed. The attack on morality, especially sexual morality, and the family, characteristic of modernity, are also rooted in the Enlightenment project that rejects the traditional liturgy. This book is not a full-dressed treatment of sexual morality, 
But I discussed the consequences of the idea that traditional sexual morality is irrational and stultifying, which since the 1960s has been found not only outside the church, but within it. This has been a decisive element in the problem of the rape gangs in this country, the longest standing clerical abuse crisis and the characterization of Catholics who love the traditional liturgy as rigid. It is because of the last of these demands a response from us that I have allowed myself to be drawn in to this area of the debate. The rigidity argument is a long-standing one, though given a boost by Pope Francis's use of it. At its roots is an audacious attempt in the 1950s by Theodore Adorno and his colleagues to psychoanalyze the Nazis as sexually repressed and then infer that anyone in America after the war who cared about traditional sexual norms was a closet Nazi. The psychological establishment, who were heavily into Freud at that time, lapped this up without demur. And despite the evident absurdity of both steps of the argument, we've been living with this trope ever since. It is in Adorno's book, The Authoritarian Personality, with a big swastika on its front cover, lest you miss the point, that, and in his sources that we find the terminology of rigidity. This is a somewhat clownish application of the basic Freudian claim that, the, that traditional sexual mores are the outward sign of an inward neurosis. And this claim, too, needs to be looked at in the eye. For it is this which, having destroyed the church's clerical discipline and spirituality, has formed the ideological backdrop of the clerical abuse crisis. Today, we live in a society in which a simplified cod Freudianism has penetrated so deeply into education and entertainment that we are hardly conscious of it. It is only that which could prevent people seeing that it is not upholding sex traditional sexual prohibitions that leads to sexual abuse and the covering of this up by apparently sane and reasonable people, but denying them. Connected to the question of the family is the modern rejection of patriarchy, and this is where I get cancelled by everyone. The original Enlightenment thinkers tend to be quite misogynistic, but feminism is nevertheless downstream of the Enlightenment rejection of tradition. Defending patriarchy is perhaps the biggest challenge I set myself in this book. The very term is supposedly toxic, and I'm quite glad that I am no longer held accountable for my views by undergraduate radicals. <laughs> I make the task a bit easier for myself however, in two ways. One is by pointing out that the church is committed to patriarchy whether we like it or not. The feminists are perfectly correct that the church is a patriarchal organisation. And whatever liberal Catholics might like to do about this, the all-male priesthood makes this fact inescapable. And the all-male priesthood is not going away. The only people given the, given the authority of spiritual paternity by the church are men. The other way I lighten my task is by appealing to the work of the new generation of feminists. <laughs> Included in this book is a review of mine by, of a book by one such feminist, Louise Perry, called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. 
it won't surprise you to hear that she's able to make a very strong case. And unironically, I do recommend her book. Perry's argument is that this thing that was billed as sexual liberation has turned out for most women to be a recipe for sexual exploitation. Her book's weakness is that it is almost entirely negative. She sees what is wrong with the current mores, but can't see her way to getting the genie back into the bottle. Many conservative Christians seem to want to respond to the problem simply by reasserting the sixth commandment, um, although the Protestants will claim it's the fifth commandment, wouldn't they? Um, but, we, but we cannot live by rules alone. We need a pattern of life which actually works that brings contentment and not simply frustration to those who do keep the rules. We need, as a first step, to start admitting that a traditional conception of the family is such a pattern of life, and we should stop discouraging young people of both sexes from considering it. This brings me to a final aspect of the book, where the connection between the subject matter and the Enlightenment might seem particularly remote. This is the question of what effect Vatican II had on the church. Some may be surprised I deal with this from an entirely sociological perspective, but allow me to conclude this talk by reading a sh short section of the book. So this is the um, last two sections of the chapter, what Vatican II did to the church. <clears throat> And I talk about the young father, Joseph Ratzinger. Um, so the Joseph Ratzinger of principles of Catholic theology and such like, uh, when he was uh, much more liberal than he later became. So <clears throat> for Ratzinger, um, yes, for the altered demolition of the church, of which Paul VI famously complained, was not an accident. It was a deliberate policy it is described with approval by the young father, Joseph Ratzinger. And I quote, The fact is, as Hans Urs von Balthasar pointed out as early as 1952, she, the church, must relinquish many of the things that have hitherto spelled security for her and that she has taken for granted. She must demolish long-standing bastions and trust solely in the shield of faith. Unquote. The idea was that the church would have more impact in the world as a whole if it was less distinctive vis-à-vis -vis the world. And that without the barriers, non-Catholics would be drawn into the church more easily. A moment's thought should have revealed that it would also be easier for Catholics to leave, which is what actually happened. Uh, but there are two other ways in which this policy was naive. First, if you want to draw people in, there must be something to draw them in to. There must be something distinctive which can attract their attention in the first place, and there must be a community wel waiting to welcome them and give them a home. If the community is undermined, so is the church's capacity to draw people in and sustain their spiritual lives. Second, the social walls, so-called, around the Catholic community before the 1960s were already crumbling for the reasons uh, discussed earlier in the chapter. 
If Vatican II had never happened, or if in some sense it could be reversed, whatever that might mean, the dense urban and rural communities of the mid-20th century would still have been opened up by the factors already mentioned, suburbanisation, expanded universities, television, and so on. Those who say that these communities were stifling and characterised by prejudice against outsiders can relax. They were doomed anyway. The only question was the degree of disintegration which was going to take place. If Bugnini, Balthazar and the liberal young Ratzinger and other Vatican II zealots wanted to see what would happen if the church was weakened as a social network, all they need to have done is wait and watch. They didn't need to take a sledgehammer to help the process along. The quotation illustrates the extent to which there was an ideological element to the process of community destruction. Even today, this makes a rational assessment of the situation and response to it difficult. From the very beginning, influential voices were sounding the alarm, but the leadership of the church was dominated by people who had been brought up on the idea that the demolition of bastions was a spiritual necessity. They are the equivalent within the church of the view of John George Monbiot, um, which I'd quoted earlier in the chapter. He said on Twitter, I grew up in one of those English villages and it was the most stultifying and boring experience of my life. Um, so they are the equivalent of um, George Monbiot, who looks on that community as it existed in the past with disdain. As noted in passing above, part of this disdain is that of a cultural elite towards the less sophisticated. Members of the progressive elite in secular society and in the church alike talk loudly about their affection for and solidarity with working people and communities, but their attitudes and policy preferences suggest they have little understanding of what sustains them. With the assistance of the Catholic anthropologist Mary Douglas, the sociologist Anthony Archer, and the writer Father Brian Houghton, I argued in chapter four that the church's leadership had and continues to have little sympathy with how the simple faithful participate in the liturgy, since they themselves participate in a somewhat different way, with much greater emphasis on intellectual engagement. I say they lack sympathy and not just understanding, because if confronted with evidence that working class Catholics participated in the liturgy in different way, I think members of the progressive elite would typically respond by saying that it must then be an inferior form of participation and that they should be forced to change. This is precisely the patronising attitude condemned by Pope Pius XII in Mediator Day, referring to those who don't follow mass word by word in hand missiles. And I quote, who then would say, on account of such a prejudice, that all these Christians cannot participate in the mass nor share its fruits, unquote. In the same way, the progressive elite derive their sense of belonging and their network of moral and practical support from somewhat different sources than everybody else. They are far less concerned with geographical proximity and shared cultural practices. They feel cosy and warm, not in a familiar neighbourhood populated with childhood friends and second cousins, but wrapped up in their sense of superiority granted by fashionable clothes and smart opinions. 
If in trouble, they are sustained by a social network constituted not by the neighbours and family, but old university and work chums inhabiting other continents. When it is pointed out to them that social and economic policies they favour are destroying the fabric of working class communities and leading to unprecedented numbers of deaths of despair, a concept combining suicide with drug overdoses and the like, Part of what hinders them from taking the problem seriously is that they do not think the way of life which once did sustain those communities was a good one. Its destruction is not something they can bring themselves to regret. They themselves don't need these things that are disappearing. Why can't those working class people be more like us? And that, of course, is the, um, the sentiment behind the desperately... Um, sad um, I, uh, slogan that was, was banded around a few years ago on, on, on social media, learn to code. Yeah, working class people being chucked out of jobs, they should learn to code. This was very widely mocked. We don't need to mock it anymore, of course, because all the coders have been thrown out um, into unemployment as well since then. Within the church, we find a progressive elite which does not derive its sense of self from continuity, familiarity, or visible markers of identity, and who are impatient of those who do, or who used to. They don't see a community based on those things as a good thing. They think, without necessarily articulating this clearly to themselves, that it would be better for everyone else to be more like them and identify with the church in a more purely intellectual way or by having some special role in it, paid or not. The problem, of course, is that the rest of society is not just unwilling to redefine themselves in the way the elite does, but is actually unable to do so. For not only does it require a level of education inaccessible to most people, but part of the self-understanding of the progressive elite is precisely as being an elite of not being like everyone else. This is not a class which could, even in theory, open itself up to encompass the whole of society. When they do find the, their markers of identity, whether fashionable opinions or clothes fashion labels, adopted by more and more people, they are obliged to find new ones. Remember what happened to Burberry. I have attempted to establish a series of claims in this chapter. First, there was a social crisis in the 1960s and 1970s which was independent of the church and would have caused higher levels of disaffiliation from the church than, the usual, than usual, regardless of what the church had done about it. Second, that the unprecedented changes of the conciliar and post-conciliar era amplified the problems Catholic communities were already facing and made the degree of lapsation worse than it would otherwise have been. And this is essentially the uh, thesis of Stephen Bullivant in his book, Mass Exodus, which I use here. Third, that those responsible for these changes lacked sympathy with the way most Catholics had been up to them connected with the church. They are sources of loyalty and affection. They thought and still think that this kind of faith is inferior to their own and are not motivated to defend or repair the highly networked so-called tribal affiliation to the church, which had served as the church's sociological basis for the previous two millennia. 
I have already noted that for most Catholics, adopting the kind of attachment for the church enjoyed by the progressive elite is simply not possible. The progressive agenda of permanent revolution in the church implies, therefore, the permanent loss of the vast majority of the flock. This is indeed a sacrifice some members of the elite are willing to make. To quote the young Ratzinger once again, the church will become small, and we will have to start afresh, more or less, from the beginning. She will no longer be able to inhabit many of the edifices she built in prosperity. As the number of her adherents diminishes, she will lose many of her social privileges. As a small society, the church will make bigger demands on the initiatives of her individual members." Unquote. The idea here is that the church will lose the lukewarm and retain the hardcore, the real believers, what Ratzinger calls the church of faith. When that process is complete, Ratzinger go on, goes on, she will enjoy a fresh blossoming. However, this is not the way things are working out. The connection that the church enjoyed with... Sorry, the connection with the church enjoyed by the elite comprising intellectual assent, institutional connections, and a sense of superiority is not strong, but rather weak. And members of this group are prone to disaffiliation, particularly as the winds of elite secular fashions begin to blow coldly on the faith. On the other hand, it is a misunderstanding to regard the faith of the Catholic working class of old as something superficial and not worth preserving just because it was not articulated by them in a highly intellectual way. This attitude towards the simple faithful is nicely expressed by Father Brian Houghton, who attributes it to the Catholic hierarchy of the period of the liturgical reform. So this is his characterization of the hierarchy's view. They practiced out of social tribal custom. Their veneration of the cross and the mass was totem worship. They were motivated by nothing more than fear of hell. Their piety was superstition and their loyalty habit. Unquote. It is telling that the faith practice of the simple faithful is often dismissed as tribal. Tribes in tribal society are central to individuals' self-understanding and represent their personal support network at its most developed to leave or be ejected from a tribe is regarded as a disaster. There is nothing superficial about tribal loyalty. It goes into the very bones. Tribes are things people are prepared to die for. Central to the so-called tribal identity of these so-called tribal Catholics were the beliefs and practices of the faith daily prayer, devotion to the sacred heart, mass going, reverence for the blessed sacrament, or however precisely it manifested itself in one time or place or another. Considered in sociological terms, these beliefs and practices were markers of identity, things which, in which Catholics found a sense of solidarity with each other, and in this way they encouraged each other to maintain them. As Houghton emphasises, it does not follow that their practice was for this reason insincere or superficial, any more than the loyalty of any tribe's member to a tribe is necessarily insincere or superficial. Much more so in the case of Catholic devotions and the use of the sacraments, these are things with a supernatural aspect as well, capable of transforming the individual and making him fit for heaven. 
Something neglected by the progressives of the mid-20th century and by their followers today is the use made by God of secondary causation in creating and sustaining the church. The primary cause is always God's creation of the universe, but in creating it, he created substances with genuine causal powers of their own. When they bring about some effect, this can be described as secondary causation. In the case of the church, we see, as well as being a supernatural reality, the church is a human institution and a human community. This human community, when it is functioning well, has real causal powers, and we notice the difference when they cease to operate. To illustrate, generally speaking, God does not simply infuse the minds of children with the truths of faith. This is done by someone sitting down with a catechism with them. God only rarely converts people by a direct self-revelation. The normal way is through the intervention of a human evangelist. The Catholic community, as a human phenomenon, is the normal means developed precisely for this purpose by God, for Catholics to be educated and sustained in the faith. Undermine its efficacy as a human community, and God will in general not step in to do the work directly. By a miracle, he will instead let us learn the hard lesson of our presumption. I wish to leave the last word to Blessed Humphrey Pritchard, a Welshman who died for the Catholic faith in Oxford in 1589, and an example of an uneducated but faithful Catholic. He was employed by In an Inn, the Catherine Wheel, which doesn't exist anymore, sadly, which during the persecution of the church was used by Catholics. When it was raided, Pritchard impeded the entry of the government agents, the pursuivants, in order to give others time to conceal incriminating objects, such as vestments. He was arrested along with two priests found there and a local gentleman who had been their guide. Like the other three, Pritchard was interrogated in London under torture, but brought back to Oxford for, for execution. His companions were not allowed to speak before being executed. Um, but since he was uneducated, he, the last of the four to die, was. An eyewitness account soon after printed in Italy describes the dialogue as follows. So I'm going to be helped in this dialogue by, uh, by a, a little assistant. Um, Pritchard, being on the last rung of the ladder, spoke in this fashion. Masters who are here present, I beg for you to bear me witness in this world that on the day of judgment that I die for being a Catholic and faithful Christian of Holy Church. On hearing this, some lout of a minister said to him, Poor man, how say you that you die a Catholic when your ignorance does not allow you to know what being a Catholic means to which he answered although i cannot explain in words which the name catholic means all the same god knows my heart and he knows that i believe all the holy roman church <coughs> believes and what i cannot explain by mouth i am ready and prepared to explain and testify to you at the cost of my blood Thank you.
This podcast was brought to you by the Latin Mass Society. We hope you enjoyed it and would appreciate your rating and podcast on the platform you are using. If you would like to find out more, do visit our website and consider joining us or giving us a donation.